Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. One thing has been unswervingly true lately about Twitter, a social media platform that was bought by billionaire Elon Musk in 2022. It's never, ever boring. That includes this week, when Musk falsely described National Public Radio as state-affiliated media on the platform. We're going to talk today about what is happening on Twitter, why it matters, and how it fits into the wider narrative about the role that social media plays in our culture. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Do you know what a Shiba Inu is? Before this week, if you'd told me it was a breed of Japanese turf dog, I'm not sure I would have believed you or ever have heard that term before. But now, if you're a Twitter user like me, somebody who uses it all the time for information, you may be more familiar with this random breed of dog. That's because this week a lot of Twitter users began seeing an image of this dog instead of the customary bird logo in places on the platform, including in that upper left space where the bird always was on your home Twitter page. Now, this image is known as Doge. It's a meme that's associated with Elon Musk, who bought Twitter last year. And it's just the latest in a series of kind of curious changes that Twitter users are finding when they f- sign onto the platform these days. These changes include starting to remove the blue check marks that were about verified accounts uh, from those who refused to pay an $8 monthly fee. Twitter also added a label to NPR's account, designating it as, quote, U.S. State Affiliated Media which is absolutely false. NPR's budget comes directly from uh, federal funding and Twitter itself, uh, actually only 1% of uh, NPR's funding comes from uh, federal funding and Twitter itself previously acknowledged NPR's editorial independence. This is not state-affiliated media. And Twitter has changed how content shows up in users' feeds and now promotes tweets from paid users more aggressively. And there are lots of other things going on. I have to say, as somebody who uses Twitter as a primary source of information and news and entertainment, that I'm assigning on these days as much to see what's different, what's happening, and what people are talking about changing on Twitter as I am to get that information. But the question is, why are these changes happening and what do they really mean? Last year, Elon Musk addressed why he was buying Twitter during an interview. 
Well, I think it's very important for there to be an inclusive arena for free speech. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. One of the things that I believe Twitter should do is make any changes uh, to people's tweets. You know, if they're emphasized or de-emphasized, uh, that action should be made apparent so you can, anyone can see that that action has been taken. So there's, there's no sort of behind-the-scenes um, manipulation, either algorithmically or manually. Um, of course, there's all kinds of behind-the-scenes manipulation going on uh, on Twitter, and that stands in really stark contrast to what Musk was saying about why he wanted to buy the platform. Remember him talking about transparency and all of these kind of very idealistic notions of social media, it really doesn't seem like that's what's happening right now. It's just been a really wild ride on the platform since Musk took over. But again, what's really behind these changes? If Musk's goal is to create a common digital town square regardless of money, does it make sense to be charging users for blue check marks? If his goal is to create a profitable platform, is decreasing the user experience the best way to do it? And what is behind all of the chaos in decision-making at the company? That is where we begin the conversation today with this platform that for many of us, and I am included in this, is a really vital part of our lives. What is going on with Twitter? Help us dive more into these questions and more. I'm joined by Sarah Morrison. She is a senior Vox reporter who covers data privacy, antitrust, and big tech. Sarah, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning. So I, I want to start with uh, what you would say are the dynamics, I guess, at play on Twitter right now. As I said, I am a very avid Twitter user. I really like the platform. I really get a lot out of the information that I find there. I like that uh, I can set it up to be a news feed. I can set it up to be a culture feed. I can set it up to be an entertainment feed. And I can get stuff that uh, very quickly that I couldn't get other places. But it has seemed like a pretty chaotic place since Elon Musk bought it. And as I said, I'm going there as much to see what's going on with the chaos as I am to get the things that I really need. So I really wonder what your assessment is about uh, of, of what's happening on the platform and why. I mean, I think you summed it up pretty well, especially what's happening lately. Um, and I think, you know, the things like forcing you know people to pay to have those uh check marks taking check marks away from people uh maybe you maybe me uh who didn't pay for them but got them because we were considered uh notable uh in some way uh and then sort of you know adding benefits to paid accounts and sort of taking them away uh from people who you know use it for free uh, a lot of this is reflective of you know one of Musk's, uh, if not his actual aim for buying this, the, the thing he really needs to do now, which is make money. Um, I think he's been pretty, um, from the beginning, pretty much, uh, pretty consistent with wanting uh, Twitter's business model to be a subscription one, um, as opposed to ad supported, uh, which is different from most other social media platforms that we use, which, you know, the whole thing is, is it's free. 
you give data um, and that's how, how you pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's in order to motivate people to, to, to pay $8 or $7 or $11 a month, the price sort of varies. Uh, if you're a company, it's like $1,000 at least a month. Um, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of things to make it especially attractive uh, to those people and then kind of antagonizing uh, the, the, the people who don't pay. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, maybe for him, not very many people are paying um, <laughs> and most people aren't. So it, it is uh, a lot of the appeal, I think, that that value is we're not really seeing it yet. I'm interested to see if once he actually does start taking those checks away, like they said they would in April 1st. It's not April 1st, it's April 6th. Um, and I think the only uh, account that I know of that's had a check taken away is like the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And that's just because somebody like pointed out that they had publicly said they won't pay for it. So he just sort of, you know, pettily removed it. Um, yeah. Uh, so once people who are used to having maybe these these check marks, whatever privileges you get uh, for them are gone, um, and they maybe have some real concerns about being impersonated, which is why they had it in the first place, maybe we'll see more people pay. Um, but until then, you know, this sort of verified, paid verified thing um, doesn't seem to be taking off. Um, you know, in the meantime, you know, the the things that we're paying him, like ads and stuff like that, that he does still need uh, very much to uh, make this platform make money. Um, you know, he's you know scared a lot of them off. There's still a lot of advertising. I mean, I see a lot of ads. I think I'm seeing more ads uh, than I was before he bought it. Um, you know, that he's not doing, it seems like a real good job of like keeping the business model that Twitter had in place that I think he, he, he does probably still need. So yeah. we'll see. So, so how much in your estimation is what Musk is doing about getting attention and getting people just to look at Twitter to see what's going on and how much of it is an actual attempt to change the, the the dynamics of the platform. I mean, some of what he said last year about transparency and uh, manipulation and and things like that. Eh, I mean, those were those were kind of valid ideas, at least to put out there. Uh, is he really is he really after? that or is this again just about grabbing attention and and I, I bring that up this week especially because of this logo change that uh, that has taken place that has not been given we've not been getting given any real explanation for it uh, I guess it doesn't really matter what logo is on the top left of the page when you go to Twitter but there's there's some messaging at work there and I wonder what you make of what he's really up to here I, yeah, I mean, especially in the first like month or two when when he took over Twitter, you know, there was a ton of attention. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of stories. There's a lot of looking. There's a lot of upheaval. Um, he was tweeting a whole lot. That's kind of faded a bit. I think people have gotten tired of it. Maybe he's realized that he should, you know, as much as he can realize things, like step back a little bit and stop, you know, telling advertisers he's going to go thermonuclear or whatever on them. Um, so we've seen like less of it lately. And then it's been a little bit of a return to form in the last week with uh, these sort of weird, seemingly childish moves, like putting a doge, which is like a symbol of a, of a crypto of all things, mm-hmm. uh, currency, just at the, on the, on the top of, of, of the page. Um, I don't, for no reason, except it seems like he tweeted, somebody tweeted at him once that he should buy Twitter and put that there. And he went, yeah, sick. 
now it's here. <laughs> it's the only thing I think I know of that he's publicly said one way or the other about why it's there. Um, and so, so at this point, your guess is as good as mine. Um, it seems like an interesting use of limited engineering resources at this point because mm -hmm. he's laid off thousands of people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, he owns it. I don't. Um, and yeah, especially in the beginning and before that, you know, he said he was felt like certain kinds of speech were being suppressed. People weren't being told why or if their speech was being suppressed. He felt like, you know, this this important resource needed to to have more free speech on it. I don't think those are like bad things necessarily like at all. Um, the problem becomes when you make that like a real like, you know, a big push stated stance and like a promise. And then you go and like remove people from you know the platform that you don't like, mm -hmm. or that if that you specifically said the, the the kid who was tracking his like private jet all over the place, mm -hmm. he specifically said he wouldn't remove that account, and and now it's it's not there, and he sort of made a new rule about why specifically sort of that kind of account you know couldn't exist, and the you know and then banned at some point journalists who like mentioned it, like it was you know so. A lot of this stuff, um, you know, and especially with like the Twitter files where he gave certain like, you know, mostly right wing writers um, access to files of what Twitter had done before he got there. So you see this like what Twitter was before was really bad and suppressive and censorship and bias against conservatives. But you don't see a lot of transparency really into what he's doing now, just what the people he didn't like did before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back. We're going to continue this conversation with Sarah Morrison, senior Vox reporter who covers data privacy, antitrust, and big tech. We're talking about Twitter, all the changes that are happening on Twitter, why they're happening, what Elon Musk, the billionaire who bought it last year, is really after, and what that looks like for those of us who are Twitter users who rely on platforms like this on social media for information and entertainment. I want to hear from you, the listeners, as well. Give us a call and let us know what you make of what's going on on Twitter. Are you a Twitter user? What do you make of the recent changes? Or have you even noticed the things that are changing? Do you think Twitter is a better place now than it was before Elon Musk bought it? Or are you someone who's walked away from it entirely? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Aretha Franklin. This is B.B. King. Hello, this is Jack White. This is Elvis Costello. And you're listening to WDET FM Detroit, your source for quality arts and information programming since 1949. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you joined. First thing I did this morning when I got up was grab my phone, get it going, go to the Twitter app, and read the story, the really compelling story in ProPublica today about 
Chief or uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas in Washington and uh, some activity he has been up to for a really long time with a really powerful conservative donor. I read every word of the story, then went back to Twitter and looked underneath the link to the story and read all the comments and all of the things that people were saying. This is how I begin almost every day these days looking at Twitter to see what's going on, to learn more about my work and the world around us. I know there are lots of other people who do the same thing, but have you noticed that Twitter seems to be changing quite a bit right now? Have you noticed that this is much about what is about to change or what has changed as it is about the information that's there? That's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Sarah Morrison, who is a senior Vox reporter. She covers data privacy, antitrust, and big tech. We also really want to hear from you on the phones and on social media, of course. Uh, give us a call. Let us know if you're a Twitter user and uh, what you use it for, how important it is to your understanding of the world, but also if you've noticed these things that seem to be different right now because there's a new owner who seems to be trying to do things a little differently. Uh, are you in favor of those changes? Uh, have you noticed them? Have you maybe not noticed them? And you use Twitter the same way you did uh, always. Uh, also, uh, give us a sense if you're someone who left Twitter altogether because uh, you weren't in favor of Elon Musk owning it and doing the things that he's doing. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter itself, put comments there, and we can include you in the conversation. Before we get to uh, our listeners, Sarah, I, I do want to get you to tell us a, a little about how users are reacting to the changes on Twitter. Do we know if any of this is is working to make it more popular, maybe more profitable? And what do we know about some of the alternative platforms like Mastodon, which tried really hard to get Twitter users to come over to that platform if they were unsatisfied? Um, it's funny because I think my morning was almost exactly the same as yours. I also woke <laughs> up, saw that, <laughs> saw that story. Everyone's reading and, that story. <laughs> and read it, yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't, I didn't actually look under it to see what people were saying about it. Um, I don't know if that was just because I had a weird morning or, uh, or because I'm not, you know, as interested, uh, in that because I think, uh, now you, the sort of people who are paying for Twitter, I believe they're getting prominence under, you know, under things, which is part of, you know, Elon Musk's, uh, plan, uh, to try to make money. Uh, so, um, I, and, you know, in terms of the numbers of how good or bad his, you know, changes have been, uh, he has said, or at least he said a couple months ago that the platform is more popular than ever, has more users than ever. Um, I'm not sure how much of this is like a curiosity um, of people who are like, what is going on? Or people who are just checking it more and more often, like maybe you and I were <laughs> when, <laughs> when it was just at its most like chaotic and sort of the, there was a novelty there. Uh, it's a private company now, so I don't think he has to disclose numbers the way Twitter did when it was public. Um, so I think some of that remains to be seen anecdotally for whatever that's worth. I've noticed less on my timeline. I, I think people, some people left, but I think a lot of people just kind of stopped tweeting as much. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know, I'm I'm a certain kind of person. If I was somebody who was really into this stuff, a big fan of Elon Musk, and a lot of people I follow or follow me were the same, maybe he'd be seeing a whole lot more. Um, so I know, you know, there's some reports have said that the amount of hate speech has gone up on the platform. So I guess <laughs> if you're into that, uh, maybe it's more appealing to you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and we have seen some of the Twitter alternatives get a little bit of traction. Um, Mastodon's the most well-known. It existed for years before, yep. um, you know, this happened. So it's established. It has, it's had record numbers of users signing up. Um, it still doesn't, it pales in comparison to the amount of people who use Twitter. I'm on it. Um, it's a little bit different. Um, so it's not the exact same experience. Maybe it shouldn't be. But for a lot of people, it's been too difficult or just it just hasn't been, they just want something that's exactly the same as Twitter, I think with exactly the same people and exactly the same functionality. Yeah. Um, and there isn't that anywhere yet. Uh, may never be, that may not be a bad thing. Um, so yeah, that's one, I think there was a post news kind of sprung up. Uh, I haven't, I was on it, I haven't been on it in a while. I think it's just become an app that's open to everybody. I think for a while it was in beta. So there's a couple things out there. Um, I use Instagram more than I used to. I've been sort of trying to find other things. I think this has been a reminder that we shouldn't put all of our eggs in maybe one social media basket, and especially as journalists that, you know, that Twitter is very much a thing that we use. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I was kind of doing that. And now that there's sort of just less stuff happening on it and I'm less interested in it, um, I'm sort of realizing how, how much of that I did. So, um, so I'm trying to diversify a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Ed on Twitter says, I've noticed in the recent past that feeds that I did get every day are not popping up anywhere anymore, but the feeds that I disagree with are, uh, that's something I hear from a lot of folks, that uh, their feed has changed significantly and 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 not to their liking. Maureen on Twitter says it isn't doing anything good for Twitter. I've used the platform since 2007. Twitter is very niche to journos, politicians, etc. And it's unfortunate to see another billionaire having such a negative influence on media and public discourse. Let's go next to the phones. And again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Let's start today with Aiden in Sterling Heights. Aiden, what's on your mind? Hi. 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 Good morning. Mm -hmm. uh, so the a few of us over on TikTok actually have a theory about why he decided to change the logo to the Doge uh, meme now. Mm-hmm. Um, he is actually undergoing a lawsuit, a $258 billion racketeering lawsuit mm -hmm. uh, in connection to Dogecoin and cryptocurrency. So it kind of changes the search from Musk Doge court case to uh, Musk Doge logo. And that that would be the top result unless yeah. you specify what what you're searching for. Right, uh, Aiden. I'm really glad you called and and shared that information, um, Sarah. I, I, I would love to have you explain why that would be advantageous. I guess to to Elon Musk to make that logo part of of Twitter, given the the reality of this lawsuit. I yeah, I've heard that theory too. Um, the thing is, like, if he didn't want people to look on Twitter for things about that lawsuit, he could just suppress it himself. He could just ask the three people left there who control 
uh, that kind of thing to just make it so it doesn't show up. So I don't, I don't know if that's really why he he did that. Because um, again, I, I I also just would I wouldn't put it past him. I don't know. I remember seeing like, you know, when Trump was president, he would say or do this wild thing, and people would say, yeah, but it's probably to distract from this other thing that just happened. Uh, that's that's more consequential, and uh, and it never. So it always feels like we're going back back to that kind of era. Um, I never knew if that was you know true either. So I've heard that theory. Whole, I mean, it's as good as anything else. Yeah. Um, but it, again, I also think he could just make it so people couldn't see things he didn't want them to see, which, uh, you know, we've seen, you know, reports that he made it so he shows up a lot more in people's feeds because he wasn't getting enough engagement on his own tweets. So, <laughs> you know, he clearly can and will do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Aiden, really appreciate the call and uh, the information. Let's go to Josh in Beverly Hills. Josh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Um, your central thesis is 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 NPR funded? Uh, is it a public broadcaster? This sort of comment, you know, during during the time that NPR was sort of uh, when it was congealed into a pseudo public broadcaster, was the time that things like the ABC, BBC, and CBC and other Western nations emerged, and you flirted with having some amount of public funding. Well, right now you only get about thirteen to fifteen percent of your funding from public fu- uh, sources. It's only one percent, uh, actually, Josh, but. Oh, that's not a, well. According to your website, according to your website, it's it's five and eight percent from federal bureaus. So I'm not exactly sure which one percent you mean, as opposed to the NPR website. I was just looking at a minute ago. Nonetheless, um, I think what's more important is to is to you know the listeners need to appreciate. It doesn't really matter if NPR is fully public funded. What is obvious is NPR is a part of uh, a misinformation disinformation network that even pre Musk Twitter was a part of. The, the misinformation or the, or the censorship industrial complex, as it's been revealed, to suppress <laughs> right wing right wing voices and material that was not advantageous to the left. Okay. And NPR frames so Josh, every story so, in this fashion. Okay, Josh, uh, can you give me an example just on this show of us suppressing voices from the right? I mean, I, I, we, we have people who are conservative on the show as much as we possibly can, because actually I enjoyed talking to them because I'm not a conservative and I'm kind of curious about how they come to the conclusions they come to. And, and you know, we also have uh, people who, who believe lots of different things. I mean, there's a really broad spectrum of, of guests and topics that we put together here. So, so I guess how, how can you support what you're saying given the show you're calling uh, is doing the opposite of what you're accusing us of doing. Well, actually, I'll make an example of this very show. So in the, the left, NPR, and major new media that's controlled by the left, not to say there's concern that nefarious cabal, just a general group of persons who all went to the same universities and who all have a similar opinions that control the mass media just by being employees of it. Twitter was an example of this. Twitter ensconced in the most far social left radical new San Francisco projected their personal views into the way. That okay. Twitter but Josh, I asked you a really specific that, question about yes. this show. Yes. I'm speaking about this topic. Okay. Twitter. Uh, okay. No. If you'll let me continue, you, you also have the problem. It seems that you like to interrupt persons when they're making a point. Well, that you know, you disagree with. Well, so I, if I, may finish, I, I, I did want to get you to the point that you're finish, trying sir. to make and, and to get you to answer my question. Go ahead, if Josh. I may. Go if ahead. I may. So, 
So NPR is now participating in the character assassination of, of the uh, Elon Musk-controlled Twitter, but makes no mention of the even more gross, even more gross narrative, narrative supporting Twitter that existed before Musk. Take, for example, the Biden laptop story. So, Josh, Josh, did you feel like that me talking about this is a is character assassination of, of Musk? Have I said anything about I mean, the first thing I said when we started the show was I, I love Twitter. I go there all the time and I'm going there as much now to see what Elon Musk is doing as I am for the information. How is that character assassination? You well, even even well. Let's take example. Another example: merely putting the Dogecoin logo on the Twitter site. Mm-hmm. Twisk is tw- Twitter. Tw- uh, Musk has had a, a serendipitous relationship with Dogecoin for a decade. Mm-hmm. When Google changes their homepage to include some sort of graphic that might be whimsical, you don't ask if Google is now fallen off the deep end or somehow Google is falling prey to a nefarious controlling person who's acting, acting, uh, well, I didn't uh, ask that know, question. Which, which sort of madness. The, your, your previous, but, your, your, so the your, distinction, your Josh, reporter. the distinction yeah. I would draw is that Google has done that for years, right? That's, that's Google's theme is that they have a different logo, uh, almost every day. This is the first time in my memory that it's happened on Twitter. So it's notable. It's something that I that I noticed. I certainly didn't criticize it, and I certainly didn't suggest that it was there was anything nefarious uh, at play. I'm curious about why it happened. Josh, I, I, I really do appreciate you calling, and I do appreciate that you know you're pushing back and and you know t- telling us that uh, that you have a, a different way of of seeing all these things. I encourage you to keep listening and keep calling in. Uh, Sarah Morrison, I'll give you a chance to to respond though to uh, you know the the themes that Josh is uh, invoking here are pretty powerful ones, and there are lots of people who feel that way, not just about uh, you know. Uh, these arguments over social media, but as Josh was saying, about uh, mass media itself. Uh, There is a lot of fear about control and manipulation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's certainly a, a worthy thing to to, to mention. Um, I may, if if I didn't before, I will now. Like, there are a lot of people who were very excited about Musk's changes and who felt like Twitter was unfairly kicking them off, making up new rules, and then all of a sudden they didn't follow them and they didn't understand why um and now they're like oh my account's been reinstated i'm back i don't have to worry about using the right pronouns um because that's not important to me and like it doesn't have to be important to everybody i guess you know uh different people have different priorities or people that they care about uh so yeah it's it's certainly i think a lot of people return a lot of people are happy a lot of people are very gleeful and feel like musk is sticking it to uh people that have stuck it to them so Sure. Um, I guess the question remains if there's there's enough of those people and that's enough of a sustainable business model, um, because a lot of that stuff. And as much as we want to say that Twitter was run by, you know, evil liberals who controlled the media, uh, it was a business. It was a public company. Um, and I think a lot of these decisions um, were business inspired and, and, and um, in terms of getting the most people and again, making the most money as Twitter 
could. Yeah. Uh, I think that would be motivating because, again, it's a business and you can have whatever political leanings you want, but you want to make money. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of Twitter's decisions uh, before Musk took over were inspired by that rather than uh, political ideology, especially when it comes to like, people at the very, very top. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Misha in Detroit, you're up next. Uh, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen, it's Misha. Hey, um, hey how are you? I'm good. I was just thinking about um, Twitter as a space for organizing. Um, I think that some of the ways things are changing in terms of um, users being able to pay for visibility and things like that um, negates the way in which the platform was used, like in the wake of the murder of George Floyd Mm -hmm. or Michael Brown. Um, A lot of community organizers have used the space to communicate and to find safety and things like that. And so... Um, that was like just a really unique and important use of the platform that's impacted by the changes. So, so Misha, uh, tell me about how you feel uh, things are different now uh, because of that. Last time we talked about this subject on the show, we talked a little about about Black Twitter and how important it had become uh, in the culture, and and that it was this, as you point out, this really powerful tool. Uh, for for organizing, do you feel like that's not true anymore, or do you feel like it's just changed? I don't know that it's not true anymore. I think it can change. I think when we talk about um, again, I, I think your guest was just talking about like she's not looking at the comments anymore because people who are paying are able to kind of rise to the top, right? Mm-hmm. So if you if you translate that to a moment where people need to be organizing or need to be able to find one another or communicate or, you know, find the safe place to go during an uprising or really any emergency when you think about it. It doesn't even have to be that kind of um, situation. Uh-huh. Then now you've changed how I can access information, how I can find people, how I can find the place to go. Yeah. Uh, Misha, I really appreciate the the call and that really kind of thoughtful observation about how how these changes are affecting Different communities, uh, Sarah. Th- this gets us closer to this. These central questions, I think, uh, about the the role of social media, what it is, uh, what these platforms actually are, uh, and and how we need to protect, I guess, uh, uh, the, the the these spaces uh, because of the importance that they've uh, that they've achieved in terms of the way that we. Uh, not just communicate with each other, but as Misha is uh, pointing out, that that people organize and that uh, people connect. Uh, the, I, I feel like this is really at the the center of the debate about cent- about social media generally, and not just Twitter. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's worth noting that not everybody can afford, or it's not a priority for people to afford. a month uh, for social media. Um, And some of those people are the ones who need these services the most. So when you, I know Busca said he wants to democratize social media, um, which you would think again would be about letting more voices speak to more people uh, more freely. Um, But he's put a price tag on that. And again, I think we'll see increasingly more and more things that paid people get that people who don't pay don't. So you will see it maybe it's going to be a lot harder to find those conversations and participate in them and like surface them. That's a lot of things that Twitter is known for and that people have used it for. A lot of that's going to go away or we're only going to see the people who paid for it. And that's sort of a 
uh, like sort of self-selecting, I guess, uh, if that's the right word, uh, niche of people. And we don't know how big it's going to be. But right now, the, the people that I'm seeing with paid check marks, you know, a lot of crypto people, you know, mm-hmm. this and that. Not a lot of community organizers that I've noticed yet. Yeah. But, um, yeah. We'll, we'll see. And, and I think it also kind of gets us closer to the question of what the government's role is in regulating and again protecting these spaces that 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 has not been decided i mean there's a lot of i think still confusion about what what role the government should play but when you're talking about uh, things like access and talking about uh, the ability for speech to flow freely uh, those those are government interests and and uh, one of the things that i think musk really inspires is a harder look at what the government's role and responsibilities are. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, with the, the, the Twitter files, I haven't been keeping up with them super in depth because there's been so many of them and they've been like, like spread across like 70,000 tweets. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, we've seen like, obviously Twitter, you know, had government agencies sort of reaching out to them and saying like, these things seem dangerous. Look mm-hmm. at this, look at this account. I don't think I've seen anything where they said you have to take this down. Mm-hmm. Government shouldn't do that. Um, but overall, like and this gets to some of the stuff I write about, the government's taken a stance one way or the other of like these are companies, they make money. We don't interfere with that unless you know we absolutely have to. So, you know, they've created let other people, other billionaires, other companies. Uh, some of the biggest in the world create the town squares that we all participate in, and they don't, you know, government doesn't own those. They don't regulate those too much, um, and they won't. So then we can have somebody just come and buy one up and make it into whatever he wants it to be, which is what happened. Yeah. Okay, Sarah Morrison of Vox, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today to talk about Twitter and social media. Thanks so much for joining. Oh, thanks for having me. When we come back, we are going to switch up subjects. We're going to take a look at a new program launched out of Wayne State University's law school that's dedicated to promoting effective bipartisan fact-finding and oversight by state legislators. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you've decided to join us. The impeachments and multiple investigations into former President Donald Trump's conduct while in office has drawn a lot of attention onto government oversight. How do we as a society make sure that those we entrust with control of our government actually serve the people and do it ethically? This past week, the Levin Center at Wayne State University launched the first and only national institution dedicated to promoting effective bipartisan fact-finding and oversight by state legislatures. It is called the State Oversight Academy, and it will focus on improving the practice of oversight by state legislatures all across the country. To help us understand more about the program, including why it was started and what the Levin Center hopes to accomplish, I'm joined now by Jim Townsend. He is the director of the Levin Center at Wayne Law and a former member of our own legislature in Lansing. Jim, welcome back to Detroit Today. Oh, Stephen, it's great 
to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, this academy, what it is, and why start it now. Well, uh, as you said, this is a, a new initiative of the, of the Levin Center that is focused on creating a national community of lawmakers, uh, scholars, journalists, and just the general public that is interested in the quality of oversight, the quality of fact-finding that's done all over our country and state legislatures. And, you know, the way to understand oversight is really to, to think about uh, what the job of a lawmaker is. You know, most of us focus on, well, you know, they, they make the laws, they write the laws, and that's true. But really, um, if, you, if you think about it, um, they're supposed to be our eyes and voice. In fact, that's what the Supreme Court said about 70 years ago in a case. They, quote, they quoted Woodrow Wilson they, uh, in, a, in an article he wrote many, many years ago, saying that when lawmakers are doing oversight, they become the eyes and voice of their constituents. And, and that's really what the State Oversight Academy is designed to do, is to get people to focus on that responsibility to help lawmakers do a better job of of, of reaching across the aisle uh, and finding facts without putting their party interests or their personal interests first. Um, you can't be the eyes and voice of your constituents if you're filtering out half of the environment, you know, if half of the facts are ones that you don't want to mention or, or pursue because they don't support your politics. That's not doing the right job. That's not doing a good job of being the eyes and voice of the people. So we want to elevate that by training lawmakers, by working with scholars to better understand how oversight works, and also by working with journalists and just the public to shine a light on how well the job of oversight and fact-finding is being done. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is an interesting question to raise today, uh, given the story that I was just talking about before in ProPublica today about uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his affiliation with this very powerful conservative donor. Uh, there's a lot in that story that reminds me of the ways in which we have not had proper oversight of some government officials, right? Uh, right. Uh, the, the, the third branch uh, at the federal level is less overseen than the other branches. Uh, but even, even given that that uh, that fact, th this is astonishing information about the ways in which um, the ways in which people who are supposed to be representing the people interact with people who uh, have you know special interests in in mind. And um, your point about bipartisan sort of analysis of these things is really important here, right? There are going to be all kinds of conservatives who are angry about this report because it's Clarence Thomas, uh, they're not going to take it seriously that uh, that uh, these things are happening and worthy of investigation. Um, I, I imagine that this is the kind of thing that you guys have in mind at the Academy. It's exactly what we have in mind. I mean, you can't do your job as a lawmaker charged with being the eyes and voice of the people, of your constituents, if you're not willing to approach these facts in good faith. So the facts here as best we understand them, is that Justice Thomas um, was not reporting some very unusual uh, gifts he was receiving from, uh, from, from a certain person, from a very wealthy individual. That should raise concerns regardless of your political affiliation. But if you're approaching facts from a, from a, a partisan uh, perspective and you're filtering out facts that don't support your agenda, then you're not going to do your job as a lawmaker ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so the State Oversight Academy is designed 
to reach out to lawmakers across the country. Now, we, we do work in Congress as well, but what we f- and, and we're going to continue to do that work. But what we found is that, you know, it's very important to get to people earlier in their careers. Half of the Congress is made up of people who came out of state legislatures. We need to be talking with them while they're building their political careers to, to let them know and to help them see, one, they have a responsibility to pursue the facts wherever they lead, and two, that they can be enormously impactful and powerful if they reach across the aisle and work with people they disagree with to pursue those facts and bring them to light. Because if you have those facts together and you have somebody standing next to you who's on the other side of the aisle, people will listen. People in your business, Stephen, will listen, right? When you see a Democrat and a Republican coming forth with a report on some issue, um, you're inclined to take that seriously. Yeah. Um, It also reminds me, this issue also reminds me of the trouble that we have had here in the state of Michigan with oversight and how that relates to transparency. Uh, this is one of the least transparent state governments in the nation. Every every report about transparency kind of reaches that same conclusion. Um, the, the relationship between transparency and oversight, I think, is really important. You cannot have proper oversight if government is doing what it's doing almost entirely behind closed doors. Uh, um, that's absolutely true, and I think <clears throat> I think the facts bear this out in Michigan. We. Uh, in our study, we've studied every state in the country and how, how well it's equipped to do oversight and how well it actually uses that authority and that capacity. Michigan has a lot of tools. It has one of the strongest set of tools in the country. It has a full-time legislature, a legislature that is actually fairly well-staffed. It has a, a very professional legislative counsel's office. It has uh, an auditor general that is one of the highly, you know, most highly rated auditor generals in the country. Um, it has a lot of assets, and yet it's not using those assets. And part of the reason is that people, is that the legislature is pretty opaque. It's very hard to see into the legislature and understand if you're, if you're a member of the media or if you're just the public to see how they're making their decisions because they don't have to, um, you know, they're not subject to uh, the Freedom of Information Act, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Jim Townsend. He is director of the Levin Center at Wayne State University Law School. Uh, He is running this new institution called the State Oversight uh, Academy. We're talking about the idea of government oversight, how important it is to democracy and how little of it we have in uh, in some cases. Uh, uh, Jim, I want to talk about uh, Congress just a little bit here, uh, a little more. And, and in the context of former President Donald Trump, uh, Congress conducted several hearings into Trump's actions as president as part of the January 6th hearings. Uh, this seems to me to be maybe a good example of oversight working. They're not done yet. We haven't seen uh, what the consequences of this investigation should be. But even though it hasn't been terribly bipartisan and there's been some partisan strain, it seems like uh, a pretty good example of how this can work. Well, I think, uh, you know, we, uh, we did, a, we did a, a convening actually back in January um, in Washington and we gathered uh, some oversight experts, including uh, an individual who had worked on that investigation to, to try to learn more about how they had sort of broken the mold and done things differently from traditional congressional investigations. One of the things they did really effectively, um, 
and this is true whether you, you know, which, regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, is that they understood that the job of a hearing, when you're doing a hearing, you actually should be already, you, you should be done with most of your investigation. People think that hearings are designed to reveal new facts. Well, that's true from the public's perspective, but the people doing the hearings should have already done their investigation. And their, the purpose of the hearing is actually to put those facts on the record. And the January 6th committee did a very good job of spending, you know, more than a year gathering facts and then being very focused in, in putting on hearings that, provo- that told a very compelling story. And, um, you know, we see examples where Congress gets that exactly wrong. Um, you know, the other day there was a hearing involving the CEO of TikTok and they bring him in and then they just yell at him for four hours. <laughs> and they, they, they obviously, it was clear that the members and the staff had not done their homework and didn't know a lot of the details and specifics because you, you could tell because of the questions they were asked. They asked the, the CEO, we're very light on facts. They didn't actually uh, address the specifics of the allegations that are being made against TikTok. And so we didn't advance the conversation very far. Had they instead taken more time, investigated further, and then brought the CEO along with a lot of other people in, Mm -hmm. they could have put some very good information on the record and actually moved us forward toward reform. And that's, it's those kinds of practices that we're trying to advance at the Levin Center, both in Congress and around the country in state legislatures. Jim, we have just uh, about a minute left. I I really want to have you talk about how average citizens, just people who are concerned about government transparency and oversight can engage with uh, this oversight academy? Well, uh, one of the things that we're really trying to do is educate the public about uh, the job of a lawmaker and and it's being so important that a lawmaker approach facts in an open and bipartisan way. Um, And so one of the ways that the public can get engaged is to to demand that the legislature operate differently. Uh, For one, you know, Term limits are a huge problem for oversight because when lawmakers are only serving a very short period of time, they don't tend to focus on the long-term effects of their actions. They don't tend to take the time to learn and dig into issues and do good oversight. So as much as possible, oppose term limits, try to get rid of them. We've made some progress here in Michigan, but not nearly enough. Uh, the term limit reform we we passed was was progress, some progress, but not nearly enough. Yeah, that's a really great point. I mean, everyone is uh, applauding what we did at the ballot box last year, and it is it is progress. But boy, it, it still limits the ability for people to to become experts in government service and to really understand their their jobs. It is something we should be coming back to. Uh, at the ballot box or otherwise uh, in the future. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's also very important that, we, that in our own conversations, and I think, you, you know, Stephen, you were trying to do this on the, on the show with, with one of the callers, where you leave your echo chamber behind. You know, you, you, you step out of that, 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 that comfort zone in terms of facts and, and perspectives and reach out to people who, who disagree with you on philosophy. Yeah. Um, we've got to insist that people do that who represent us in our capital. Okay, Jim Townsend, director of the Levin Center at Wayne State Law School and new head of the State Oversight Academy. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for coming in today on Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to see you. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we look at the growing universe of non-traditional treatments 
uh, with the author of a new book, If It Sounds Like a Quack, A Journey to the Fringes of American Medicine. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>